Welcome to the Living Faith Missionary Church Podcast. You're about to listen to a message from Pastor Chris Starn, Senior Pastor at Living Faith in Yoder, Indiana. It is our prayer that this message is an encouragement and a blessing to your life. If you have your Bibles, open to the book of Isaiah. Yes, we are in, still in Isaiah. And I sat down last night and mapped out the whole book. And we'll probably be in Isaiah till next May. I'm serious. I've to, it's a long book. That's okay. It's a good book. It's an awesome book. I'm, and there's, as I'm going through it, I'm realizing that there's a reason that we are in it. Um, with everything going on in our world today, it makes perfect sense that we are in the book of Isaiah. So if you want to follow along, we're going to be in Isaiah 9. And we're going to begin, actually we'll start verse 8, but I'll get to that in just a moment. Just one second here. There we go. That's better. You know, there are now objects of that very same anger and wrath of God that is expressed in the torments of hell. And the reason why they do not go down to hell at each moment is not because God, in whose power they are, is not then very angry with them, as he is with many miserable creatures now tormented in hell who there feel and bear the fierceness of his wrath. Yea, God is a great deal more angry with great numbers that are now on earth. Yea, doubtless with many that are now in this congregation. Those words were written by Jonathan Edwards, one of the, one of the great preachers of our times. And it was a sermon that he called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Now, this sermon was given in 1741 in multiple locations at multiple times by Jonathan Edwards. And every time that he gave it, there was an enormous outpouring of conviction and repentance in all those that heard it. Now, I wonder if that same sermon was given today, if it would have the same impact. Many churches today don't preach about the wrath of God. They don't teach directly from Scripture. They don't, they, and there's church attenders who don't want to think that God is wrathful or angry. No, God is love. God is kindness. God is forgiveness. Yes, He is all those things. But what we're going to see in Isaiah today is we're going to see that God is full of anger. I know. We tell our kids, you know, don't, don't get angry. But there is a difference between being angry and a righteous anger. The truth is that God is the most loving person in the Bible. But there's also the truth that God is the most angry person in the Bible. The Bible says that God is love in 1 John 4. You know, it never does say that God is is angry, that he's angered. But we see it, especially in Isaiah today. But see, what we got to remember is when, when the, the wrath of God is not an act of cruelty. Oh, we get angry and we're cruel. In fact, I have this theory that when, when we get angry, that little man or woman in our heads that tells us, don't be mean, is asleep. Because we do, in our anger, we become cruel, we become mean. That's not what God's wrath is about. In fact, the wrath of God is an act of humility. 
doesn't make sense, but it is. And God's love and grace would be meaningless without His wrath. We've got to remember, God is, God is all-powerful. There's nothing He can't do. He could just, you know, sometimes I wonder if he would, why He doesn't do this. He could just step back from creation, and He can allow us to completely destroy ourselves, which is exactly what we would do if we were left without God. Human nature is that we are prone to sin and destruction. We would destroy each other. We've all heard the statistics. How long would it take for a society to melt into chaos? Wouldn't be years. It probably wouldn't even be months. It'd be weeks. Why does it happen? It's because of the grace of God. It's general grace. It's poured out upon all the world. But see, he either can he could step back and let us run amok, let us destroy ourselves, or we, or he can wait until we come to our senses. Instead, what he did is, and what he does is, he steps into history. He steps into the chaos, and what he does, he provides for us a way out of the chaos. You know, it's, it's the defiance of his creation. It's our defiance as humanity of God that, that has caused his anger to be provoked, his wrath to be come to the surface. His wrath is in opposition to everything that is evil. See, God is, God's like this surgeon. What God wants to do is, God wants to go in and he wants to cut out the tumor. He wants to cut out the cancer. But see, the difference between God and most surgeons is that God takes it personally because God, number one, created us. And number two, he loves us so much. He wants to remove the affliction, not only from the patient, but he wants to remove the affliction, remove sin, remove the cancer from all of creation. See, in order for us to understand and to kind of fathom this balance between God's love and God's wrath, we almost have to invent new words. So I invented a word, it's called kind anger. Kind anger. It is God's, in his kind anger, that took the guilt, our guilt of sin, upon Jesus Christ on the cross. And in the process, he destroys all the remaining sin inside of us. So the problem is we keep sinning. <laughs> I'm not, I'll, never, I'll never state that I am sinless, because I'm not. But even so, Christ died for that sin too. The sin I'm going to commit tomorrow, the sin I'm going to commit later, he died for it. He paid the price. And in the end, he will eradicate all injustice. He's going to eliminate all suffering from the world. I don't know about you, but I'm looking forward to that day. Because what will happen is Jesus will return and he will begin his thousand-year reign of his kingdom here on earth. Now, we, we need to understand a little bit about God's wrath. God's wrath works in two different ways, very different, distinct different ways. First, his wrath ultimately is here to condemn those who reject him. 
It's not that God is this vindictive person in heaven who, who looks down on man and says, all right, don't like that one, he's in hell. That's not what he does. What he does is, those who reject Christ prefer hell. That's a simple fact. They prefer hell. So he gives them what, he, what they want. They may not realize it, but that's what they want. By rejecting Christ, people are saying, we prefer the other alternative. And the only other alternative is hell. And that's going to get, they're going to get exactly what they want. So that's the first thing it does. It, it condemns those who reject him. God's anger will also purify those who love him. I mean, just as, as, as good fathers, we, we discipline our children. Why? Not because we're vindictive and because we're bigger than, well, we are bigger than they are, because we're bigger than they are. That's not why we do it. We do it because we love them. We do it because we want them to understand. And when, we, and when you and I, when we lose sight of the wrath of God, I don't think we can fully understand salvation. Just like the Israelites did in Isaiah's day. So let's go to Isaiah 9, starting with verse 8. This is what he says. He says, The Lord has sent a word against Jacob, and it will fall on Israel, and all the people will know. Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, who say in pride and arrogance of heart, the bricks have fallen, but we will rebuild with dressed stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will put cedars in their place. You know, we're, we're a very, very proud people. We are full of pride, arrogance. And when we do that, we miss the messages that God is getting, putting before us. You know, those words, those final words of the bricks have fallen, but we will build with dressed stones, the sycamores have been cut down, but we will put cedars in their place. Back in 2004, Senator John Edwards was speaking to the Congressional Black Caucus prayer breakfast, and he quoted that. This was the anniversary of the 9-11 attack. Edward stated that these words were from the Lord and that it should bring us comfort. Senator Tom Daschle, just a few days after 9-11, had, had said that those same words in front of Congress. Both of these men, they thought that these words were words meant to tell us to pick ourselves back up. We're going to build back better. I hate that term. <laughs> we're going to build it. We're going to be better than we were before. We're going to be back even stronger. It's a very American way of thinking, right? Knock us down, what are we going to do? We're going to get back up again. The problem is that these words were not words to bring comfort. These were words to bring condemnation. Israel had... And what we have today is what Isaiah calls pride and arrogance of heart. Judah was coming under military attack. But what did they do? They just laughed it off. <laughs> it's no big deal. Knock us down. We'll get back up again. We'll build it with better bricks. They saw these setbacks as challenges and an opportunity to rebuild the past, and to actually improve on it. It is this arrogance that got them into trouble in the first place. 
The same arrogance that gets our nation into trouble today. I had to ask, are we better since 9-11? Are we a better society? Are we? Is what we've rebuilt and become better than what it was before, like what it was on September 10th of 2001? Even from a physical perspective, you know that the two towers that were there took three years to build back in the 1970s? Three years to build those two towers. Guess how long it's taken the one that replaced it? It took five years to plan it and to build it. And it is actually not even as tall. It is 28 stories shorter than the previous two towers. Is that better? In our arrogance, we say we're going to build back better. We're going to build it. It's going to be better than it was before. What arrogance. As a society, we're headed towards another disaster. We just dealt with COVID. And there's more coming. Our world is falling together, as I say. Let's not even begin to talk about the liberty that was sacrificed that we'll never see again. I tell my kids, because they've now flown in an airplane, I said, you know, there used to come a time we didn't take our shoes off. Why do we take our shoes off? I said, because some idiot tried to sneak a bomb on a plane in his shoe, blew himself up, or caused a fire on himself, burned himself. I said, it'll never be the same again. Oh, it'll be better. No, I don't think so. I don't think so. See, in, in our, in, in Judah's pride, we, we don't reflect on what has recurred, occurred. And we, we, we shun humility. We don't want to be humble. We don't want to be humbled. Sometimes, I'll be honest with you, when you get knocked down, the smart thing is to stay down. We want to get back up and we want to fight. Our memories are short. Our attentions are distracted by the new and shinier baubles that, that point us and make us forget about who God is and how God is working in history and all the events that the earth that gives the earth meaning. That's one of the reasons why I enjoy Michael Heiser's book so much because it's talking about the big picture. What is God doing? See, I want to focus on my story because my story is most important. No, I'm sorry. Our story is not most important. God's story is most important. The signs of the time are right in front of us. And what do we do? We choose to look the other way and we ignore the warnings that God is giving us. So what does God do? God acts again to try to get the attention of Judah. In verse 11 he says, But the Lord raises the adversaries of Rezin against him and stirs up his enemies. The Syrians on the east and the Philistines on the west devour Israel with open mouth. For all this his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. I, I have to think that God is, is not happy with our country. And we've been through a lot and God is still angry. It's not done. We are not finished. His wrath is continuing. He's still trying to get our attention. The adversaries of Rezin are the Assyrians. God's going to raise them up himself. And there's irony in what God is going to do because the more prideful and the more arrogant that the Israelites become and the more prideful and arrogant we become, 
the more God's going to respond with his wrath. You know, we discipline our children. We say, don't do this. And they, in their pride and their little arrogance that they have no idea what it even means, they, they do it again, and they keep doing it in spite of what we say. So what do we do? All right, let's ramp it up. I'm going to take this away. I'm going to take that away. And if they're young enough, we ultimately say, all right, it's time for a spanking. I don't spank my kids anymore because it hurts me more than it hurts them because my hand just can't take it. But God's ramping up his wrath. And this is reflected in what Peter says in 1 Peter 5. He says, likewise, you, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. In our arrogance, we stand up and we say, we oppose things because we're prideful, things we shouldn't oppose. We oppose God and what God is doing. There are some things we need to oppose, and I'll talk about that in a few moments, but we oppose God, and he's like, no, 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 no. I'm going to humble you more. Apparently, you didn't learn less than the first time. You're going to learn it some more. So God will stretch out his hand because we've ignored his warnings and have continued in our pride and arrogance. Instead of turning to God, we turn to the same old ways and the same ways we've always done things. In fact, we double down. And Isaiah says in verse 13, he says, the people did not turn to him. Even after his hand stretched out, even after the Assyrians were attacking, they did not turn to him who struck them nor inquire of the Lord of hosts. They didn't even ask God why. Don't we wonder why? I ask God why all the time. They don't turn to him. Even after being attacked and disciplined, they still don't turn to him. See, you see, when, when God strikes us with discipline, when, when he allows things in our life to, to help us make a struggle, the biggest mistake we make is we turn from him, if we turn from him and run from him, instead of running to him. I always tell people when, they, when they're talking about their finances, because I used to do financial counseling, and they say, well, i got all these creditors, what do I do? I say, you call every single one of them, and you send them a little bit every week. And you call them the next week and you do it again. You run to them. You know, the only way we can run from God is to run to Him. We've got to run to Him. But many times, what do people do? They lash out at God. Why are you doing this to me, God? Why are you allowing this to happen? I don't deserve this. Yeah, you deserve much worse. When in reality, it's their actions, the things they've done that have put them into the place where they're at. And God is trying to humble them, and they need to humbly come to him in repentance, saying they're sorry for what they've done. The only way to run from God is to run to him. So let us not be like Israel and make a foolish choice. So what is God's response to this choice? How did he respond to the Israelites when they didn't even turn from, to him after he had put his hand upon them and had caused them to be in distress? Verse 14 says, So the Lord cut off from Israel head and tail, palm and branch, and reed in one day. 
the elder, the honored man is the head. The prophet who teaches lies is the tail. For those who guide this people have been leading them astray, and those who are guided by them are swallowed up. Therefore the Lord does not rejoice over their young men, and has no compassion on their fatherless and widows. For everyone is godless and an evildoer, and every mouth speaks folly. For all this his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. I just want to make one comment about these verses right here pertaining to us today. I truly believe we get the leaders we deserve. Think about that when you think about who's in that White House and who's in Congress. We get the leaders we deserve. Because this nation has turned from God, continues to turn from God. The leaders and the prophets who should have been leading the people to God, what are they doing? They're going to get cut off. They're going to be gone. The leaders and the prophets who are supposed to be were held to a higher standard. Our leaders today, not only of the country, but also of our churches, will be accountable for how they led the people. There's this holy obligation for leaders. I and the elders are going to be held to a higher standard than you are. And that's okay. We've accepted that as part of our leadership. Not that you can get away with things that we can't. That's not what it means. It means he's going to also look at how we led. He's going to look at me as how did I use his word? Did I preach the truth? Did I preach his word? Did I handle his scripture the way it deserves to be handled? But we have this holy obligation to model and to teach holy living as defined by the word of God. Holiness is not this creation of culture. Culture does not create holiness. It is solely defined by God and God alone. We are to be holy as He is holy. See, if I as a leader, if I proclaim that I'm a follower and a leader for Jesus Christ, I'm representing Him, and to embrace and endorse the very sins that Jesus died for, is hypocrisy. We as a church, we've got to draw the line in our culture against unholy living. We cannot compromise what the Scripture says is holy living. We, we, if we attempt to break 2,000 years of church tradition and 4,000 years of biblical teaching in the name of inclusiveness and acceptance, we'd be better off, we should, do it under the name of a different religion than Christianity. We must be awake to the fact that we have a Heavenly Father who one day we will answer to. Yes, He loves us. Yes, He forgives us. But above all else, He is holy. If anyone is hell-bent on hellish living, we can't condone it. It's not even up for debate. It cannot be. Verse 18 of Isaiah 9. For wickedness burns like a fire. It consumes briars and thorns. It kindles the thickets of the forest. And they roll upward in a column of smoke. Through the wrath of the Lord of hosts, the land is scorched. And the people are like fuel for the fire. No one spares another. They slice meat on the right, but are still hungry. And they devour on the left, but are not satisfied. Each devours the flesh of his own arm. Manasseh devours Ephraim, and Ephraim devours Manasseh. 
Together, they are against Judah. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. Do you see? Do you see the ramping up of his wrath? Do you see it starts with him not being humble, and God is God's going to bring this army, and then all of a sudden now, not only do they have the army, but they're devouring each other. It's getting worse. Because see, self-seeking will lead to self-destruction. Sin burns like a wildfire inside of us. And it'll consume everything in its path. Just ask anybody from California who's experienced a wildfire. It doesn't care. It just burns until there's no more fuel left. The pain that sin brings is not an addition to the sin. It's piled up on top of it, on top of it, on top of it. We think, oh, I'll commit the sin. Nobody will know, and God does. We feel the guilt. We feel the shame. That's why it really concerns me when, when churches kind of try to eliminate shame. I'm sorry. Shame's a good thing. It keeps us in line. It keeps us. If we have no shame for what we do, we have become depraved, completely depraved. The pain that sin brings, it's an addition. It's piled on top of it. It's a result of our sin. And what happens is God is allowing this wildfire to burn. Look at our world today. Doesn't it seem like it's on fire? And it's just getting worse? Our leaders are getting more, I don't know what I want to call it. I want to say stupid, but I just think ignorant. It's not even stupidity, it's ignorance. They don't see what's going on. They're not humble. It consumes, sin will consume our lives, it'll consume our families, it consumes our churches, it'll consume our business and our society. God's wrath is in the damage that sin inflicts upon us. And what God does in his wrath, the reason why he allows these things to happen is he's hoping that we'll see where we are. And we'll turn back to him. That's why God, you know, God tells, tells, you know, Paul told the church, you know, if you have a brother who, who just won't repent, you know, hand him over to Satan. What, to be destroyed? No. Let Satan have his way with him. Let him get to the bare bottom. Let him get to where he's awful. He'll finally realize how far he's fallen. And he will finally, if he's going to, he'll come back to God. But as long as we coddle him and allow him, the person to continue to sin, they're going to just keep on sinning. Like the prodigal son. Think about that. When did he realize that he had done wrong? When he was he's Jewish and he's taking care of pigs and he's eating what the pigs eat. That's pretty low. I've seen what they eat. I used to slop pigs with my grandfather. I wouldn't eat that slop. No. Self-seeking people continue to devour instead of mending. Paul warned us what's going to happen. If we continue in our selfishness, and we in self-seeking, and we self-destruct, he says, but if you bite, in Galatians 5, he says, if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. See, all this injustice that we see around us is going to lead to helplessness. I see it. I see it in our society today. We think we're so strong as a society. We think we're so strong as an economy. We're going to be helpless. 
And it's going to happen. Unless we turn back to God. Unless we repent. In chapter 10 of Isaiah, this is what he says. He says, Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees and the writers who keep writing oppression to turn aside the needy from justice and to rob the poor, my people, of their right. That widows may be their spoil and that they may make the fatherless their prey. What will you do on the day of punishment and the, the ruin that will come from afar? To whom will you flee for help? And where will you leave your right wealth? Nothing remains but to crouch among the prisoners or fall among the slain. For all this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. All these trials and tribulations that we have in the world and in our lives are happening to us by the hand of God. We don't like to think about that. God's allowing, you know, Russia to rampage through Ukraine? Yep. Yep. God's allowing the government to do crazy things? Yep, he sure is. You want hell, you're going to get it. Verse 5. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in the hands is my fury. (laughs) You, you may be a Syria. Don't, don't be prideful either because God's going to take care of you too. Against the godless nation I send him and against the people of my wrath I command him to take spoil and seize plunder and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. But he does not so intend and his heart does not so think but it is in the heart to destroy and to cut off nations not a few. For he says, Are not my commanders all kings? Is not Kauno like Carchemish? Is not Hamath like Arpad? Is not Samaria like Damascus? As my hand has reached to the kingdoms of the idols, whose carved images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not do to Jerusalem and their idols as I have done to Samaria and her images? When the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. For he says, by the strength of my hand, I have done it. And by my wisdom, for I have understanding, I remove the boundaries of peoples and I plunder their treasures. Like a bull, I bring down those who sit on the thrones. My hand has found like a, is, has found like a nest the wealth of all the peoples. As one gathers the eggs that have been forsaken, so I have gathered all the earth. And there was none that moved a wing or opened the mouth or chirped. So the axe boast over him who, who hews with it. For the saw magnify itself against him who wields it, as if a rod should wield him who lifts it, and as if a staff should lift him who is not wood. You see, the king of Assyria was boasting because look what we're doing. We're we're a mighty nation. Huh. We're conquering. We are the alpha dog. And God says, Foolish man. You're only doing this because I'm allowing you to do this. God is the one who's sovereign. Everything belongs to God. The world is God's. Why? Because he created it. It's his. He does with it as he pleases. And he's holy. So he doesn't do anything wrong with it. We may look at it and say, well, that's wrong. We don't understand. We don't see the whole picture. But God is sovereign. He is king of the universe. 
It is from his glorious throne that he rules all things. So as we look at the world today and we see things happening and, and we wonder, what, God, why are you doing this? Why are you allowing this to happen? He has his purpose. And we have to trust him. That he knows what he's doing. He created it all. He knew this was going. He knew this day was coming. He knew when things were going to happen. He's not ignorant. He knows everything. God is no respecter, and he does not have double standards. The same sins he judges the world for, he's going to judge his people for. Just because we belong to God does not exempt us and does not protect us from his discipline. So I always tell people, listen, you become a believer in Christ, your life's not going to be roses and cherries and unicorns and rainbows all the time. It's going to be tough. That's going to be harder. What a great sales pitch, huh? Join us for discipline and torment. Yeah. Why? Because the next life is better. A day of reckoning is on the schedule. It's coming. God is a real person with real anger. Yes, I call him a person. He's spirit. Yes, God the Father is spirit. But Jesus was a person. And he is God. He has real anger, but he also has real love. He has wonderful things to share with us. If, if, you go, if you go to Revelation and you go past all of the darkness of the tribulation, or back to, to Revelation, you go back past the darkness of the tribulation, to when Christ comes and you read all the things that are going to be in his kingdom, what we're going to experience, and believe me, that doesn't even touch it. There's no end to what we're going to experience. That's his love. But he's holy, and he can't be in the presence of sin, so he had to take care of it, and he did on the cross. The problem is, we don't want the cross. We want our way. We want sin, and ultimately we want hell. Uh, it's interesting, um, a lot of people in the, who, are, who are not believers will say, oh yeah, hell's going to be a party! Sorry, it's going to be torment, weeping, gnashing of teeth, torn flesh, darkness, the complete absence of God. And we were not meant to be there. Hell was created for Satan and his angels. But because we're choosing that over God, that's where we'll end up, where we don't belong. God wants to share so many wonderful things with us. He wants His grace is sufficient to recover every place that we have failed. I, I can't redeem myself. I can't redeem all the things. I sit sometimes and I look back on my life and I look at the things. I was like, oh, oh, why did I do that? Why did I say that? Why did I do that thing? And God says, it's okay. I got it. You're forgiven. It's fine. God doesn't remember them. He chooses not to remember them. That's pretty amazing because God knows everything. He chooses not to remember your sins when you repent. We must get rid of our pride, our arrogance, and our self-exaltation. We need to not lift ourselves up. I was I was watching a video. I watch a lot of videos from, from different places in there's a church, I'm not even going to name them, 
because I don't, I really don't want to name them right now. Um, we may more, talk more about them later on, or I may talk about them in a video sometime soon. This church, when you first come to the church, you start getting involved in the church, they have this whole production team that puts together a video. It's not anywhere here in this area. And what they do is they give you this video, and in the video the pastor tells you, listen, you don't realize how blessed you are to be in this part of this church under this pastor. I'm like, really? I said, I come in here every day and I'm amazed that you people come in here and listen to me talk. I, I wouldn't. <laughs> I don't understand how we think, how we can exalt ourselves knowing ourselves. Knowing that we're fallen, broken creatures. We need to exalt God. We need to exalt Christ. So why does God blindside us sometimes? Because, you know, sometimes the only way we're going to listen to him is the hard way. I'll be the first one to admit, that's me. God, God tells me things, and I'm, I don't hear his voice or anything. I don't want to go that far. I'm just saying that he'll, he'll, something will happen in my life. I'm like, yep. Should have learned that one, shouldn't I, back when it was easy, because I'm learning the hard way, the difficult way. What my dad used to call bullheaded. I think he's called me, he called me that a few times in my life. I'm bullheaded. You see, God wishes, he wants to lead us beside still waters. But he's not going to settle for this polite, unreal religiousness that the church seems to cling to today. When I say the church, I mean the people of the church. A large portion of people who call themselves Christian cling to this unreligiousness. We've got to remember what Peter wrote in 1 Peter 5, 6. He says, humble yourselves. Humble yourselves. I think, I think he meant, humble yourselves before God humbles you. I'd much rather be humbled by myself than humbled by God. He says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, he may exalt you. If I humble myself, God will exalt me. It says in Scripture that he proclaims, if, if, if we proclaim his name in front of people, he will proclaim our name in front of his Father. If we don't, if we don't, he will not proclaim our name in front of his Father. Humble yourself. Repent. And you will be exalted by God. Let's pray. Thank you for joining us today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. If you're watching on YouTube, please like this video as it will help in spreading this message into the global online community. Please consider subscribing to our page so that you will receive notices when we post new messages. If you're watching this on Rumble, please hit the Rumble button for this video so that the gospel can be spread into the What Rumble community. Also, consider subscribing to our Rumble channel. You can also listen to our podcast on Amazon Music and Apple Podcasts. We hope you have a blessed day.